For November 1st, 2010, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 122, Pancakes and Politics. Welcome to the Overspooking It podcast. Where we subject the popular culture to a level of fright, it probably won't survive. (laughs) (laughs) I'm your host, Count Matthew Rather, here with the panel to overthink all things spooky uh, and Halloween. And um, we're lucky in that on the panel we have, for the first time in a while, Matthew Belinky. Hey, Matt. Uh, Glad to make my triumphant return. Yeah, it's I, hope a, I, I hope I survive. It is. Your yeah, I know. <laughs> laughter. Other podcasters have not been so lucky. <laughs> That's from. Modern. I'm just actually scared of Prussians in general. So that accent, uh, <laughs> divorced from any uh, vampire connotations, sort of sends a chill up my spine. Right, because I just be... nobility in, in inbred genetics. It should be what, <laughs> like Romanian or something, right? I don't know. Somewhere in Europe, I'm tempted to say. Yeah. Eastern Europe, right? I saw Van Helsing. It's somewhere there. <laughs> it's set in there. Um, well, that's fantastic. You are returning in Triumph because you are returning. I think I'll, I'll bet you are the only overthinking it writer to have seen all seven uh, Saw movies. Yeah. It's interesting about the Saw series is that it really does sort of I, – I, I compared it to Lost in my, uh, my post about it this week. And I think – I mean, obviously the Losties might be offended by that, but the comparison is apt in, in certain ways. And one of which is that like once you get past a certain event horizon, it really does suck you in and you're sort of in for the duration. So that like if you watch past like Saw 3 – you kind of like will have to watch Saw's, you know, the, the rest of them because there's just too many sort of loose ends um, out there for you not to be curious what happens next. Fair enough. Um, All right. Yeah. Well, question of the week Halloween costume. That's the obvious one. Matt, why don't you start us off? Uh, I actually have a good one this year. I did a sort of a, a do it yourself maker fair type project with my, my girlfriend, Yael, and my son, Oliver. And we are the angry birds this year that I am the red bird, uh, who I believe has a special Paris. He's just very angry. And Oliver, my five year old son, is the blue bird. And he splits into three. And he actually has two little stuffed uh, replicas of his own costume that he carries <laughs> around and can throw at people. Awesome. When he, and he does. Don't get anywhere near him today because he will throw a stuffed bluebird at you. And my girlfriend is one of those green pigs. Um, and so that she basically has volunteered to be a punching bag for the day and get rammed from all directions <laughs> that's, how, that's how you know it's love yeah pretty much i, I didn't mean to make it such a w in, double innuendo but i'm gonna let that sit <laughs> hey i got a, a idea for a spinoff costume how about the angry b y r d s so you could have like you know dressed like the band from the 60s with the curly big curly hair and the, and the guitars and they'd be angry and they'd be you know smashing things you know what, like, th- there's like a subgenre of Halloween costumes, which is Halloween costumes that no one could possibly tell what you're supposed to be, but then when you explain it, everyone thinks it's really clever. 
Yeah, but I, I'm not a fan. I'm not a big fan of those. I think it should be sort of obvious. And yeah, and, I think so. I think that it, it should. No matter how clever your costume is, if like somebody, you know, at least at least like let's say twenty percent of like a cross section of population is not going to like identify your costume on site. Um, it's just well, it's just annoying for you because then like in order for people to understand your genius, you're going to have to like either um either explain it to people or like wander around with flyers that you then hand out to people that like have an explanation of like what your costume is and like all the the loving details you put into its craftsmanship right uh mark lee okay i don't have a costume prepared yet and this is a problem because it's 145 uh p.m on the day of halloween so i'm gonna go with instead sort of more uh, uh fantasy halloween costume perhaps might be the ultimate costume i can't imagine anybody could possibly pull this off but um, obviously, science fiction properties make for great costumes, right? Um, and what is sort of the most outlandish, large, and impossible to costume science fiction character of them all? But V'ger from the original Star Trek <laughs> motion picture. Oh, right? How goodness. could you imagine a V'ger costume? You were just like, like a frame. <laughs> you would like mount a frame around yourself. Oh yeah, you like and yourself would be the satellite, but somehow you would have this huge cloud of like energy and stuff all around you all the stuff yeah, 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 yeah there'd be the ball chick would be orbiting around there somewhere and then the enterprise and and uh and, and captain kirk in that sort of you know short-sleeved sexy starfleet uniform they had in the first movie before they got the the classier red uniforms yeah i think that'd be pretty great Excellent. it could be an entire float it could be an entire float in the greenwich village halloween parade that's what it would be Wow, that, that would be impressive. That like you could be like the original satellite from like the nineteen fifties <laughs> or sixties, whatever it was. Uh-huh. And then like around you is like this massive uh, structure that like an alien civilization built. Yeah. To help you in your original mission. Yeah. And but that, that is definitely cloud. one that, be an actual energy cloud as well. Yeah, I mean, if you could definitely uh, borrow some sort of cyclotron, then yeah, that would yeah. be ideal. Of course. I'm sorry, City, I'm sorry I haven't been as involved in the conversation. I uh, When Blinky mentioned Angry Birds, I had to whip out my phone and play a couple rounds of Angry Birds. But, um, yeah, that happens. Yeah. <laughs> I, had, I have an announcement to make, though. I, you know, I have not been on the Angry Birds bandwagon uh, that long. Uh, but um, I've had a lot of uh, downtime, a lot of kind of hurry up and wait time where I, I have to be at school. But, um, you know, I'm sitting around waiting for something to happen. And Angry Birds is the perfect, uh, I mean, for an indeterminate length of time. And Angry Birds is the uh, the perfect game for that. And so last night I beat Angry Birds. I uh, got went through all the levels. No, not the gold star level, not the gold egg levels. And I haven't gotten three stars in everything yet. But uh, I have now at least once successfully completed all the, the levels in Angry Birds. So I am uh I'm exhausted. I feel like I've I've won the Tour de France, you know. But uh I uh but I I would put it on my resume, I think, as an accomplishment. So I, I guess at the risk of uh spoilers, is there like a cutscene at the end of Angry Birds that shows the retrieval of the eggs? Yeah, there is a there is a cutscene at the end of the last world that um uh that shows I think all the, the pigs um you know defeated. Right, and like facing justice as some sort of Nuremberg trial. They're in a. They're actually in a saw-like trap. Oh, here's my costume, sexy Kevorkian. <laughs> <laughs> okay, go on. Is that it? <laughs> that's, is, that's that, it. is that all the detail it's, we're getting? It's high concept. 
It's a it's a high concept costume. No, I don't know. Uh, sexy something. I want to do something. I wanted to do something sexy and uh, something that would be the la- the least sexy thing that you can. You know, Matt. Do. I hate to point this out. It's usually the girls who take advantage of the sort of sexy costume Halloween thing. Why do you have to be so heteronormative, Blinky? Gosh. Yeah, is it an is it an advantage? Is it an advantage that they take, or is it you know just uh, just oppression in a uh, oppression in a cat ears headband? <laughs> I know my my oh the other last Halloween costume idea I want to throw out there. I made this joke last year on Twitter, but it's worth saying again. You know, there's so many sexy nurses out there. I feel like the sexy nurses should all get sexy healthcare reform. <laughs> they they got their sexy healthcare reform last year, so someone should dress up as sexy healthcare reform. Right, absolutely. Instead of a sexy nurse or a sexy doctor. Well, so uh, on on overthinking it this week, Matt, you wrote an article, two articles about Saw. One was about the advertising, which seems to be. Uh, more than usually derivative uh, for a movie yeah. ad. And uh, the other was called The Shocking Complexity of the Saw Movies, wherein you make an argument that Saw is an artistically serious enterprise uh, insofar as it... What? Well, uh, insofar as it is uh, very narratively complex and also seems to have something like real motivations for its, uh, for, for all the carnage, though there, yeah, I mean, there are points of slippage. The, the argument was, was sort of twofold, which is that like, A, the Saw movies are very heavily sort of serialized to an extent that most non-fans don't understand because certainly the trailers and the advertisements are not like, you know, you'll finally find out what happened last year when this happened, and you'll find out what was in that envelope from two years ago. But the movies themselves are actually, uh, you know, if in, in Saw 3D, for instance, that I saw last night, there are almost certainly flashbacks to all of the six previous movies. Sometimes it's to show you a snippet of somebody in a trap in a previous movie, and then you see what happened to them now. Sometimes it's to sort of show you uh, what went on immediately before or after something we saw in a previous movie. Um, and I mean, there's there is an entirely new story that sort of moves forward. But you know, in in the Saw series, everything is sort of always um, everything always sort of like circles around, and um, you're you're sort of forced to reexamine. I mean, I, I guess I guess it's, it's tough to talk about this without uh, bringing in Saw spoilers. Yeah, um, spoiler so alert! Gonna, Entire franchise. I'm, yeah, spoiler entire franchise. So basically in, in Saw 1, it's established that there is a the Jigsaw killer um, who is not actually a killer. What he does is he puts you in a, a trap and gives you a means of escape. The means of escape will either be very painful and self-mutilating or will require you to uh, hurt or kill somebody else. And the idea is to basically show you how much you love your life, even if you are somebody who is like a worthless junkie or you committed, uh, tried to commit suicide, to sort of like uh, force you to either, you know, what he, what he typically says right before he turns the trap on is live or die, make your choice. Because the idea is if you don't do anything, the trap will kill you. And it'll probably kill you in a fairly painless way that like when the trap goes off, it, I mean, this is not always true, but like oftentimes the death will be like so uh, apocalyptic and violent. It'll be like, you know, your head will just get ripped off all of a sudden or like, you know, a bomb will explode and like crush you. And But it's if you want to escape, then you have to endure a lot of pain because you have like 60 seconds to um, 
I mean, I, I guess I should I should go into some examples at, at this point. Oh, Although, like please. some of them, some of them are 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 hard to listen to. I mean, I, I guess um, one of my favorite ones from from Saw Two was just like you know you are a drug dealer. You know you've done a lot of evil things, but now if you want the antidote <clears throat> to the poison that I've injected you with, you're going to have to jump into a giant pit of syringes and and search around in it for a, a key that I've hidden inside. And you've got to do this within like two minutes. And uh, the the drug dealer actually has the brilliant solution of like taking another character and throwing the other character into the pit and making them search for the. And of course, like you know, by the time the character comes out, they have like you know dozens of syringes just embedded in all parts of their body. Uh. Um, that and sounds terrible. That, that sounds yeah, I mean, like a movie I don't want to watch. <laughs> that's one of the more symbolic ones. Uh, and I mean, could we, we use a euphemism for this, Matt? Could we say like instead of like you know saw your own hand off at the wrist? Could we say like pet a kitty or something? Pet, and like pet a kitty. You have to. You have okay, to. Pet, um, you have to pet one hundred kitties in order to. Right. Okay. So, so here's an example. There's a there's a trap from Saw Six, and I'll use euphemisms for this one, where they're simply like, um, you have a device on your head, and in 60 seconds, it will tickle you. But uh-huh. the only way to make your device stop, there are two people in this trap, both with tickle devices on their heads, uh-huh. and the only way to make it stop is that there is a scale, and they each could put, uh, uh, they have a. Um, Hmm. Instead of instead of knives, I'm going to say they have uh, pancakes. They have pancakes, okay. and they could use the pancakes to cut off uh, pieces of kitty and put the pieces of kitty on the scale. And that the more weight, it, whoever has the more weight on their scale at the end of sixty seconds doesn't get tickled. Wow. Did you did you understand that with all the? Yeah, 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 yeah. I understand that. I wish I didn't actually. Right. That's horrific. I mean, I'm just going to go up and say that. That's freaking horrific. Right. No, and, and I think that's I think what, what I've always admired about the series is that the traps um have a great variation. That that's a fairly low tech trap. It's just a scale and a bunch of pancakes and uh, and uh tickle tickle helmets. But I mean some of them are extremely complex and have I mean like machines that are rigged up to move and uh 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 Jeez, I'm trying to come up with like one that's one that's um really okay. Yeah, this is a good one. So a guy who um the the, the hit and run driver that killed his son that that's sort of like he, he's never managed to get over that and his life has fallen apart, and so that he um has to go through a series of traps which involve him confronting the various people that were complicit in this happening, such as um. There was a witness that didn't come forward, and he has a trap involving her. And then at the, the at the very end, he has to actually confront the person who did this and sort of decide whether he's willing to endure pain to save this person from death. But then in the middle of the movie, he um, encounters the judge who gave this gave this guy a very light sentence. And the judge is basically it's in the it's in an old slaughterhouse that all this is taking place. Should I continue to use the, the euphemisms? By the way, no, you, that was funny once. Okay, um, so the the judge is like sort of like a chained to the bottom of uh, of a large uh, bin, and the bin it starts to sl- uh, starts to fill up with uh, slaughtered pig guts. That there's a machine that's slaughtering pigs in real time, and it's filling up the machine. So that's the judge is going to drown in pig guts in like you know a minute or two. And in order to save the guy, if he wants, he has uh, the, the 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 grieving father here is presented with. Um, 
with a bunch of belongings of his uh, of his son, and he is told that the key that will save the judge is in one of the belongings. And in order to get it, he has to incinerate all the belongings and like throw them in an incinerator. And after they're incinerated, the key will remain, and he can unlock the judge. So he has to decide whether he's willing to like incinerate all these teddy bears in order to save the guy who who sort of freed. You know the, the the driver who killed the son. So it's it's symbolically like, are you are you willing to let go of what happened and forgive the guy? Yeah, exactly. I think I think that, I mean that that movie is Saw uh, three, and and the whole in general the way these movies work is that there is a central game being played where one character has to go through. Um, a series of like almost like this is your lifestyle traps, where like you know like three or four traps where in each of them he will. Um, have to do something that's sort of symbolic of like a failure or he'll have to play a game where he competes against or tries to free other people who are sort of complicit in his sin. And then at the end, he'll, he will get a chance to either like free his family that's being held hostage, which is the reason he's doing this or escape to freedom. Um, and then in the meanwhile, around that sort of central game being played, there are often sort of flashbacks or sort of side little standalone games being played. Um, so, so Matt, when in in these things, I'm curious about the the how the movies are structured because I can't, I actually really can't abide this sort of thing. I, you know, I I don't get to the symbolic level or to the kind of masterful plotting or I mean, or you know, complex plotting, whether it's masterful or not. I I just sort of lose my lunch at the the torture porn aspects of it, and I can't uh, I can't endure such things. But yeah. uh, I'm curious about how it's how it's organized. So do you stay with the guy doing the thing for two minutes or do you cut away to other threads of the story, come back and check on him and then cut away and then come back? In general, the, there, there's sort of three things going on. I mean, every, every movie is a little bit different, but there's, there's the Persian and the trap and, and the set, and, and this almost unfolds in real time that the central game, um, I'm pretty sure in more than one movie, it has like a 60 minute time limit. So basically, you know, by the time it starts, you're a little ways into the movie. And then he's like, you have 60 minutes to like make it through this maze and accomplish all these tasks. Otherwise, like you'll never see your child again. Stuff like that. Okay. And so that that's going on that the guy's trying to like, you know, get through these sort of sub games to get to the end. Um, and then in the meantime, there's always detectives and or FBI agents investigating this. And they almost without exception, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and say without exception, uh, sooner or later encounter a violent death. That investigating the, the jigsaw crimes, I mean, what, what generally happens is that the person will... Um, sort of figure it out. We'll like figure out where it might be taking place or follow a bunch of clues to where it might be taking place. And this person sort of in their zeal to like, because oftentimes the person knows that there is a game going on right now. And like this, you know, like, like there's a great sense of urgency to, to stop this killer before it's too late. And invariably the, the sort of lead detective or FBI agent will run into this building uh, without backup by themselves, only to find out that Jigsaw completely expected this and perhaps planned this and has left uh, a cryptic videotape naming them by name and uh, a brittle death trap. So, and Matt, so, so I have a question about this, the role yeah. of law enforcement in this, because, you know, they're, they're it, it, based on sort of if Jigsaw has all these things that he's trying to do, he is the sort of the, the judge the 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 forgiver of sins and all these types of things and these outside you know establishment law enforcement figures are coming in and messing with his plan so they are being depicted as as something negative as some sort of like is, is jigsaw like the pure judge here and and the law enforcement are somehow in, invading that 
or in violation of that? What, what role does law, these law enforcement people play if there's some sort of larger symbolism going on here? It's an interesting question because I think um, Jigsaw is uh, he's almost never seen in Saw 1 that it's sort of like a last second revelation at the end of Saw 1 that you finally sort of see the killer, the revelation of who he is, his identity. Uh, Saw 2 and 3, he gets a lot of screen time. And by the way, uh, the Jigsaw himself, as played by Tobin Bell, is really uh, excellently done. That He is... Uh, a really sort of mesmerizing character and the actor does a really great job of being sort of creepy without being a cartoon. And like every time he's on screen, he's, he's really riveting. And so he gets a lot of time to sort of explain exactly why he's doing this and what his philosophy is in Saw 2 and 3. And one thing he makes it very clear is he does not think of himself as a murderer. And in fact, he hates murderers and often puts them in his traps for their crimes. Um, that like he claims that he's never killed anyone. What he does is he gives people um, a painful means of escape, and if they don't escape, it just means that they didn't value life and therefore deserve to die. So, but my, I, I guess my point is that it it is hard to square this one hundred percent. And I think what it comes down to is that like the writers are willing to sort of like follow their, you know the 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 rules they've laid out to a point, but beyond that point, like they're just interested in telling a fun story and setting up some fun traps and they don't stress too much on whether they all sort of like make sense from like the point of view of, of uh, jigsaw ethics mm-hmm. so that like while you know based on what jigsaw says you would expect him to take great pains not to be killing police officers because he he doesn't like killing people he likes he wants to take people he feels are sort of uh flawed and damaged human beings and give them a chance at redemption. And he feels that the only way to redeem people is to sort of make them face death. Um, or sort of mortify, so the, that- mortify the flesh. And you make, you make some, uh, you make some hay out of the medieval, uh, you know, kind of, um, what ascetic aspects of this. Yeah. And I think Jigsaw and actually I think his, his apprentices in later movies are often seen in a, in a black robe with red lining, which is sort of very visually striking, but also I think sort of, um, sort of reinforces this thing that like, you know, he is a monk. He is, um, he lives this incredibly Spartan lifestyle and he believes that like, if you are a sitter, you have to pay in blood for that. If you are to be redeemed. Um, and I think there, there is also a suggestion that because Jigsaw himself is uh, dying of terminal cancer and extremely, and he's only alive for three out of the seven movies. And in the rest of the movies, what? he's just seen in uh, yeah, no, he, he dies on screen uh, at the end of Saw 3 in a very final way. But through the rest of the movies, there are either uh, a lot of flashbacks to the past that shows him still alive. In some cases, I think uh, Saw 4 actually shows him significantly before he even got sick. It was sort of like just, just the sort of first hints that he was going to – back when he actually helped run uh, like a methadone clinic and like a health clinic for like uh, like drug users and like uh, homeless people. You know, so that like this is a guy who's really interested in taking people with broken lives and sort of fixing them. And the movie is sort of like gradually through the course of little flashbacks and, and hints of his own story that he tells in the present sort of uh, shows this thing that, that he eventually came to feel that just trying to help these people by being nice to them is just sort of enabling them to go on being horrible people. That if you really want to help them, you have to put them in a situation where they either have to help themselves or, or die. 
Or use um, pancakes to cut up kitties. Yes, use pancakes to cut pieces off of kitties and and, and hope that them. they don't die of stuffing loss. But it's so this is this is um I, so I wonder about two questions. I mean, so this is his backstory, and so he has a backstory. There was a point where he turned, and then he he got sick, he got terminally ill, and this be it became very urgent that he do this very quickly. Okay, fair enough. But um, is this uh, two two questions? One. This enterprise seems to require a lot of money and two, a lot of information. And is it ever addressed how the the uh, the elaborate seven movie arc of traps and things like this is is a funded and b researched? Um, well, I think the, the second point more than the first. Um, it's a little unclear what he did before he became a professional serial killer. And 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 uh, torture zealot, but besides it, the methadone, you said the methadone, it, methadone clinic thing, right? Right. Well, it seems uh, that was. There's not a ton of money in in methadone clinics for homeless people. But that was more his 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 ex wife who becomes a major character in the later movies, and his relationship with her was sort of a turning point. Um, she was a she's a doctor, and she it was her clinic, and uh, okay. he sort of helped run it. He certainly supported it. Um, but he, by, by training is an engineer. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And you sort of see him and, and, and definitely like in, in one, one previous movie, you see somebody in a flashback talk about how he had a deal to work on all these buildings and he sort of reneges on the deal because he's busy working on a secret project full time, which is these like elaborate, uh, death traps. So he's the, the sort of the, 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 the nature of the traps can be totally explained by like, he is a mechanical engineer by training. He, you see him in the past before he became evil with like a giant workshop full of like machine parts. Um, so that and um, the the traps actually make more sense in retrospect because of revelations in later movies about the people he had helping him. Um, I mean, should I should I go ahead with more more spoilers? Hit it, hit us. All right, all right. So in in a lot of the earlier movies, one of the big mysteries is like, how could he possibly know these things? Uh, about the people that he's chosen to test, you know, because a lot of the times they're sort of sins. The reason why they're being tested are fairly secret things that, that you know, most people would have no way of, of knowing or finding, having found out about. For instance, in Saw 2, the central test is a group of people who haven't met each other that are in a, locked in a house full of traps. And the, the sort of opening message to them is like, you need to find out what connects you, and then you'll sort of understand why you're here. And eventually it turns out that they are all, they've all been in jail, but that's not connects them. What connects them is that they are all innocent, and they were all framed by the same man. And and one of them is that man's son in in the trap. Now this is something where it's like, okay, that's sort of that's sort of clever. It was sort of like a, a curveball revelation. But how could he have possibly known that? Then two movies later in Saw Four, it turns out that one of the accomplices of Jigsaw is in fact a detective in the very same precinct of the detective that framed everybody. Which, in retrospect, totally explains how he would have this knowledge from Saw Two. Is this is this something that's ethically tricky? Like, why would someone uh, who's been framed need to be sort of morally tested? And well, I think I think I think you're 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 getting at a, a crucial point here, which is that not. Oh, right, go on, go on with your question. Why would um, why why ought the the sins of the father be visited on the son? Um. 
I, I, to answer those two questions specifically, I'd have to watch Saw 2 again, but I think that although they were framed, they are not completely innocent people. Basically, like, one of them is, like, a prostitute, and although she, like, maybe was, like, uh, had, like, doctor evidence that actually convicted her, that doesn't mean that she was not a prostitute. Um, you know, like, the, the, the other one, that was the, the one with the drug dealer in the, in the pit of syringes. And although he may have been convicted on false evidence, he was indeed a drug dealer. So I think that it is sort of... Um, it it is a little it is a little dicey, um, and I think that one of the one of the central questions that you have to ask about this, and it came up in the, in the common thread of this, is that he he claims that he is doing this for science. He's he's a scientist. He's an engineer by training. He says, and I think in more than one movie. Uh, this is not an emotional thing. It's not a personal thing. These are just like, you know, he looks at these people like they're broken machines and he is trying to fix them via, you know, and, and these to him are experiments and either the person survives and then it was sort of a positive experiment and he could refine his technique in the future or they didn't survive and he could think about maybe he could do something differently. So he's working on a, a technique. Um, and at the same time, though, some of the people who end up in the trap, for instance, in the very first movie, the main person being tested is uh, is uh, the Dread Pirate Roberts himself, Carrie Elways, who is <laughs> reprising his role, right? Uh, yes, as, Dread as, as a Dread Pirates Robert. Uh, no, I, he's he plays a doctor, and he's trying to figure out why he's being tested, and. The the reason that that sort of jigsaw makes clear listening to the traps is that this is a guy who has been cheating on his wife, and that is the reason that that he's he's not appreciating life because he has a beautiful wife and kid, and he has been cheating on them, and that is why he needs to be tested. and And his trap is basically like we will kill you know like I I jigsaw will kill your wife and kid unless you prove how much you love them by cutting off your foot right now, um, and. That, okay, you can kind of buy that, but you put it alongside the other traps in Saw 1, the sort of side traps, which is somebody who tried to commit suicide that he's now testing. He's like, oh, if you want to die, all you have to do is stay where you are. But if you want to live, you're going to have to go through this maze of barbed wire. And the other one is somebody who's like a, like a junkie, and it's like you're, you're wasting your life and you're, you're killing yourself through drugs. And if you want to live, you're going to have to get through this trap. So that those are clearly two people who are living much less of a worthwhile life than the successful doctor who happens to be cheating on his wife a little bit. And at the end of the movie, it turns out that this doctor is, in fact, Jigsaw's doctor, the guy who is supposed to be treating him of cancer and not healing him. And you definitely have to, although Jigsaw would, of course, deny this. Jigsaw would just be like, this is a guy I happen to come across. He's my doctor. And I happened to find out that he's having an affair, and I decided to test him. But you've got to wonder whether the fact that it's the guy who could not save his life, um, you know, that, that always has, like, one hand on the door, that maybe his bedside manner is a little too callous, that, like, you know, there's a little satisfaction in, like, torturing, you know, your that, that whether it is personal for him. And obviously, in some of the... I'm just trying to think of like some of the lesser reasons why people are in this trap. At the beginning of Saw 2, actually, I think there's a standalone game involving somebody who is a police informant. And his game is like, you you know, you use your eyes to like, you know, snitch on people. And so now it's like you have to gouge out one of your own eyes to survive. And you're sort of like, hold on a minute. So like Jigsaw is now sort of a stop snitching kind of advocate. <laughs> that like, are we really against the police informant in principle? So it's a plot point. Um, it's a plot point, isn't it? That some at some point the the apprentices start setting up traps and their traps are not as 
uh, what theoretically pure is Jigsaw's traps, right? Yeah, that, that it becomes a big point in, in Saw Three. It continues to be to some extent. It's in Saw Three. There, there are traps that are unwinnable. There's like literally like, oh, maybe you have to like reach into a beaker of acid to get a key. But then when you get the key, it turns out not to be the right key, and you die anyway. Um, and so the trap just made you do something really painful and then killed you. And there was never a way out. And this is sort of Jigsaw deals with this in his own way. But like he makes it clear that like that's not the way he does things, that everyone deserves a second chance is is what he says. And that no matter how terrible the people's crimes are, that like unwinnable games are not allowed. We don't ju- we don't just torture and kill people. We give them a chance to 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 redeem themselves through these games. So what about um, uh, what about the audience, Matt? Does the audience have a chance to redeem itself because after all what what we're enjoying in watching these movies and I I mean I say we collectively. I I don't watch these movies, but I watch other movies that are ethically questionable that I want to get to in a minute. Um like what what the the come on for watching these movies is not just the suspense of a you know of a horror movie, but um uh you're going to be able to witness a lot of very gruesome carnage. Uh, involving pancakes and kitties and and uh, rotating pancakes and you know a, a tickle trap and all these uh, all these things is our I mean are we complicit in something and, and you know you've heard me talk about Law and Order Special Victims Unit so you know my answer to this but uh, are we complicit somehow um, in uh, in in something sort of unseemly by uh, by enjoying or by being kind of turned on by the the um the specter of of pancakes kitties and tickle traps and going to these movies um this is a point that i purposely didn't address in my earlier post because i i i feel like the answer may be like a yes um i don't know how strong a yes it is but I think this is something that's present in a lot of horror. I mean, I guess there's some pure horror where where all the the scariness is because of suspense. But a lot of it, especially, let's say, the movies that are slasher movies like uh, Nightmare on Elm Street or something, you go, like the true horror uh, uh, buffs, go to see the kills. You want to see somebody get... um, get slaughtered in a graphic and painful and creative way, you know, and like, like uh, the sort of creativity and, and elaborateness of the kills is part of the appeal. Now, this is very much magnified in the Saw series where very little of the horror and the scariness of this comes from suspense that in general in this, somebody will walk into a room with a machine and there will be a tape recorder or a videotape and it will play and it will explain exactly what the machine is going to do and how to stop it and then the person will have to do it so nothing really surprises us in these movies i mean i guess there are (laughs) there are a few yeah no no there are a few scares where people uh you know like things jump out at you from the shadows but that's not what the saw movies are about so the saw movies are all about watching people get tortured in a very grisly way like you know um and and i don't know if, if this is a really defensible thing i mean i guess to, I don't know, to, to expand it to, to, a, to almost a comically broad level, you could look at, like, just what, is, what do movies in general do? You know, you experience things vicariously through other people, either great love or great... I mean, is it any better to watch a movie like, let's say, Mystic River, where somebody has their, their daughter is killed, and they're just uh, insane with grief? Is that 
a lot different than watching somebody, you know, get cut in half very slowly by a machine. It's the same thing that you're watching something which is horrible and you would never wish on your worst enemy, but you, in a way, kind of enjoy um, watching it happen in fiction. The catharsis. I mean, this is something that Pete talks about sometimes. Like, uh, are you entitled to your catharsis? Or, you know, let's take, actually, since Jigsaw has cancer, let's take, like, Grandma dies of cancer. You know what I mean? And the family, like, reunites and learns to love again because of Grandma's cancer. Uh, You know, which is the kind of the narrative fallacy of the fortunate cancer. This is, you know, this is a sort of terrible thing. Like, people's misery as an excuse for your audience catharsis, and you get to cry and feel better about yourself walking out. And, um, you know, whether you, uh, no, it's not Pete. It's someone else I know who talks about this, but like the, the issue is like, you know, what are you getting, what are you getting your jollies from? You know what I mean? What is the, if, if movies are kind of emotional transportation, if film is in the emotional transportation business, um, how much does it cost to get you where you're going, uh, emotionally? And is it, you know, is it worth it just as a, as a related genre with, um, with carnage because it's sort of emotional carnage in the, in the dead kid or the grandma with cancer, you know, theoretical scenario. Um, think of like war movies, even a movie like action movies, like, uh, like starship troopers. But I, I'm thinking even more of, you know, uh, uh, saving private Ryan or something like that, where, where there is a lot of brutal, um, brutal carnage right and you know the the idea that being that the camera can't make um an anti-war movie because things that move you know things that blow up things that sort of die are so compelling uh violence is so compelling uh when when photographed uh in a particular way that you know it's it's impossible not to be not to be riveted by it. So I, I think you're right, Matt, to go to say that this goes to the core of what we enjoy about film. Now, there's something qualitatively different that's kind of happened between Alfred Hitchcock, say, and now. Um, and in a way, you know, in a way, these movies are less horrifying than a, a lot of Hitchcock because you don't, you're not left to imagine anything, right? It's It's all... Uh, sort of splayed out right in front of you. Yeah, I, I don't think I would even describe the Saw movies as scary. Like they don't, they don't get inside your head and and haunt you. It's more like they're they're sort of fun to watch just because they're sort of these sort of. Um, I mean, like like in the movie theater, people were laughing a lot through the movie because it's just there's such. Uh, these incredibly elaborate situations where people are getting maimed in such uh, over-the-top ways that, like, I think I think the reaction is sort of like to sort of cringe and giggle, um, you know, as as opposed to something that's like truly scary, where you're just sort of like uh, cowering in your seat and you just can't tear your eyes away. Sure, The Ring uh, or like Paranormal Activity. I think I think The Ring is a great example of a movie that really I I don't, I don't uh, hesitate to say that it, it scared me uh, in a much more significant way than the Saw movies did. Which the Saw movies are fun to watch and the twists keep you coming back, but like I don't think they there's no. Here's the thing: the Saw movies are often described as torture porn, and I feel like it's a perfect example because the deal with porn is that it's it's sex. Uh, without any emotional context or story context that like it's not sex in the context like like what it is is, is it, it's it's depicting something physical without any emotional underpinning what you don't, you don't get emotional about your cable tv repair 
<laughs> what kind I, of I mean, like, yeah no when cable tv has been out a couple days <laughs> i am i am pretty emotional about it let me tell you and when the repairman shows up well you know catharsis yeah exactly right. Sorry. <laughs> well like well, let me compare saw to like let's say oedipus rex oedipus rex a guy gouges his own eyes out it happens off screen but it's a similar thrill where Stage, he comes on but okay Right, right. And I, I, you know what? The stage is a screen by other means. Um, so that he, he wanders on for Lost Stage. And I mean, I guess if it's a really classical stage, he's wearing a mask, a bloody mask. But obviously the audience imagines, you know, what it would be. My God, how distraught must you be to, to rip out your own eyes? And how painful would that be? And how miserable would you be afterwards? And it's, it's a... a, a, a a Saw-esque thrill, but I think the difference is that Oedipus is a character and we have gotten to sort of know him and we've got we, we understand why he does that. He doesn't just do it because somebody points a gun at his head and makes him do that. He chooses to do that because he is driven to by emotion. And I think that's very it's different. Also, than, it's been than, building up over the course of the movie. You know what I mean? It's not like bam, suddenly you have an hour in which to do these things. There's been this enormous uh, lead up to that, to that moment and that's yeah. kind of the climax now, of it. And then in Saw 4, there's a character who is given the choice. You either have to gouge your eyes out or this machine will rip all your limbs off. And this is a character we've never met before. We have no uh, emotional connection with. And the thrill of that scene is just sort of like, what would you do? And how painful would it be? You know, and like, can he do it in time? And it's a sort of ticking clock thing where he's sort of like building up his courage and panicking more and more. And I think that is sort of torture porn because it is like the, the, the act of torture without any of the sort of underpinnings of story or emotion or character. So let me – I mean the, there's, a, some, there's a body of film theory that says that horror movies are related to kind of anxieties in the culture, uh, anxieties about you know, genetic engineering in certain movies or anxieties about nuclear uh, uh, technology in the 50s. What, what sort of anxieties do you – I have an idea about this, so if you, if you don't want to answer, I, I can. But what sort of anxieties do you think these sorts of films express? I mean, I, I see them as being very much sort of like extensions in one directions from uh, Fight Club, and a lot of the lot of the ideas in there. I mean, I think I think one of the things is that the idea that like we are all sort of soft and untested, and 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 modern society allows us to be um, lazy and complacent and never really have to deal with a life or death situation and make. Uh, a horrible choice to save a life and how would you react if you're suddenly you you are in a parking garage one minute and then you wake up and you're in a trap and you have 60 seconds to save your wife or save yourself what would you be willing to do and i mean i guess it's it's the, the i guess the fear in our culture is that we're sort of like we're divorced from um having having to uh take sort of heroic extreme action uh but I mean, I, I think the 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 larger theme that that some of the movies get away from, but it always comes back to, is the sort of idea of like uh, self improvement. That like can can people change, um, and if so, like what is that going to take? That sounds like that is, sounds like a uh, an extension less of Fight Club and more of another David Fincher movie, Seven, right? Um, 
the, you know, the idea of uh, if you're a sinner, are you are you a sinner forever and, and you're damned, you know, right? That is to say, these these are Jigsaw's Trap seems like slower versions of the Kevin Spacey murders in uh, in seven, right? You, you know what? It's, it's very interesting because I hadn't it hadn't occurred to me both Fight Club and seven are David Fisher movies because they're clearly the two uh, top inspirations that that um, visually. Uh, the Saw movies are very, very seven, that they all take place in these sort of like uh, rotted, decrepit, you know, post-industrial interiors. It's it's this sort of seedy, urban, uh, neo-noir landscape. And it's these sort of like elaborate uh, death traps that are somehow symbolic of your sins. And then you combine that, but then you combine that with a sort of uh, fight club idea that like, well, we're not just killing these people because they deserve to die. What we're doing is we are sort of like giving them these potentially fatal tests to allow them to redeem themselves. Yeah. Because only the, the way to make you appreciate your life is to sort of like uh, get out of the office and like, you know, be, be in a fight club and to like have to like punch somebody and, uh, you know, get in a car crash and come climbing out of the wreckage and then you'll be reborn. Well, they're different. And, I mean, uh, they're different views of how you how you save society, right? One one view is one individual at a time. And the the other uh, the seven view is you sacrifice a few individuals in order to kind of affect a larger purging in the society as a whole. Yeah, and you know what? I think this is something that um, that the the series, even after seven movies, is not fully explored. Which is that, like, how have these have these killings, which are obviously taking place in this one city over a relatively limited period of time, are they changing people's behavior at large? Or are these still pretty much isolated things that not everyone even really hears about because maybe the the FBI is sort of covering them up, keeping the details from leaking? And is that what Jigsaw wants? Are the ideas like these saw killings, are they really just about taking specific people and giving them a chance to live a better life? Or are these supposed to be uh, very public warnings and symbols to other people that's supposed to sort of like change the whole society? And there's there's a little sort of nod to that direction in Saw 3D that, that we see our first trap in this movie that takes place in public, um, yeah. you know. And I think I think that if there is another Saw movie, which they say that there won't, but this one is actually going to do pretty well at the box office, and maybe not next year, but I mean, you know, I, I I would say that sooner or later there'll be another Saw, and I'd be sort of curious whether it becomes more about. Um, you know, are these killings just are, are the are the saw traps just traps, or are they sort of uh, attempts to change the whole society? Well, speaking of attempts to change the whole society, uh, yeah. we have an interview with uh, Pete Fenzel, who was at the rally to restore sanity in Washington <laughs> D.C. Uh, coming up in just a second. So we'll uh, leave this conversation there. And thanks to Matt and Mark for uh, having it with us. It's my pleasure. All right, take care. We will be back right after this. We are back with Peter Fenzel. Hey, Pete. Hey. Uh, happy nice Halloween. to uh, yeah. Happy Halloween. It's, <laughs> we're recording this on Halloween, uh, but yep. uh, midday. It's still light out where I am anyway. So the ghouls have not yet begun to haunt the uh, you know streets of the city of Los Angeles. How about you? Oh well, it's about seven o'clock now. I flew in from D.C. a little while ago, so I'm back home and uh, on the on the Skype where the sound quality is better than on my cell phone, so I can join you guys, which I'm uh, glad to be able to do. Yeah, well, I'm glad I'm glad you're on the episode, and I'm glad that we can ask you uh, a little bit about the rally to restore fanity. Uh, fanity. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
<laughs> or vanity. No, sanity. It's the or... rally to restore fantasy, and it's fantasy. it's hosted by a series of marriages that have been going on for about fifteen or sixteen years <laughs> that are trying to recapture the magic. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, it was, it was, it was hosted like... by uh, gosh, who was that hosted by? Uh, I think um, uh, Raymond. Ch- Chuck Willery. Like, Chuck Willery. Everybody yeah. loves. Yeah, Chuck Willery. Exactly. <laughs> Chuck Willery is perfect. Well, we'll be back uh, with that in two minutes and two seconds. Yeah. But let's uh, let's ask you uh, the question of the week: uh, Halloween okay. costume, Pete. What is it? Oh, so this year uh, I I repeated a Halloween costume I did about seven years ago because uh, it was easy, and because I, I was traveling, I couldn't take much on the airplane. So I was uh, Braveheart this Halloween. Nice, uh, which is a great costume. If you ever want to, this is how you do a. a Budget, budget Braveheart costume, right? You uh, you fa- paint your face. You need some white and blue face paint, which you can usually get in like a little variety pack from the store. And then you need some sort of cheap plaid throw rug, which I purchased right. at a Safeway for $14. Sure. So you, you take – and what I did with the cheap plaid throw rug this year is I cut it in half. Half of it I wrapped around my waist and pinned with safety pins as a kilt. And then, ha- and then half of it I cut into strips and used one of the strips as a sash that I threw over my shoulder. So I had kind of like the kilt and the sash thing going and the blue and white face paint worked now, out pretty Pete, well. Now, Pete, let me ask you this. Blue, uh, face paint at a Halloween party. I mean, yeah. you know, maybe I'm cynical, but I think the point of all parties is for people to get drunk and make out with each other. <laughs> and I think that there are some challenges posed by painting your face blue uh, because, you know, say it's a very good party and you find three or four girls who, who are willing to, to make out with you. <laughs> or uh, ladies, you find <laughs> gentlemen, or gentlemen, you find each other, or ladies, you find each other. I mean, to be neither uh, heteronormative nor or uh, sexist in any in any respect, but sure. um, you know, uh, if it's a good party, you know there there are uh, you know multiple games of tonsil hockey going on, and <laughs> it's too easy for people to see who you've been making out with in <laughs> the linen closet or you know upstairs bathroom or whatever, uh, because you will leave an imprint of blue on <laughs> on the uh, faces of uh, anyone who, uh, with whom you have intimate contact. Yeah, it, it's like the memory of William Wallace that lives with us always, right? <laughs> now, uh, funny story about that. This year, I was on my best behavior because I was at my sister's house. So I was staying at my sister's apartment at a party at her place. And, and although, you know, we danced, we had fun, you know, and all that other stuff, um, you know, people were having a good time. I still was a little bit, like, conscious of the fact that I was among my sister's friends, and so I wasn't really cutting loose all the way. So there was no making out at my sister's party uh, for me. But when I did this costume seven years ago, I actually made out at a party with a girl who was dressed like Elmo uh, from Sesame Street. She's actually dressed like the female version of Elmo, which I'm not <laughs> sure I remember the name of, but there's like a female counterpart to Elmo. So I had blue and white face paint on, and she had red face paint on. And so after it was done, we both had purple face paint yeah, on. Yeah, you pretty, did. <laughs> it was pretty wow. funny. That sounds yeah. gross, though, right? Like... <laughs> ah, you know, it was dark. That's one of the things. <laughs> if you ever throw a Halloween party for somebody over the age of, of like, 21, I'm going to say that so as to avoid being super skeezy, uh, turn the lights down. Seriously. I mean, yeah, we all get to see the costumes, but, like, there's a lot of dishevelment that happens. Not just in the, in the area of, like, make attitude, but, like, if someone's costume gets a little ripped or, 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 like, bothered, then it is nice if not everybody has to see it. So there you go. For sure. I That's some free advice for you. That is gratis. Right there, gratis. Yeah, we we don't even need to uh, we don't even need to resurrect Pete's short-lived advice column. Uh, why not ask <laughs> Fenzel? Yeah, maybe I should do that at some point. We'll think, see what happens. I think we should. I think we should. Okay. You know what? If you want to email questions to Pete at uh, Fenzel at overthinkingit.com, Pete will answer your questions in an uh, in a semi-regular advice column entitled "Why Not Ask Fenzel?" If you I, I, yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> I make no promises not to go on a two thousand word uh, a digression on like word etymology or like medieval history. <laughs> like so. Be warned. This no, one, well, these things will not necessarily be succinct. If um, that sounds like yeah. your cup of tea and you have a question, why not ask Fenzel? Exactly. Because you've tried everyone else and you still have decided not to take action. So let's delay further by getting further opinions. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, Pete, you were at the, uh, the, rally, the Rally to Restore Sanity. Yes, I was at the, ra- the Rally to Restore Sanity. So That's tell correct. Me, tell me first, what, what prompted you to go? I mean, did it just sound awesome? Or I, I guess your, your sister's there and you wanted to spend the holiday weekend with her. Yeah, yeah. It was a combination of things. On one hand, it was that I wanted to spend time with my sister uh, in D.C. On the other hand is that um, I had kind of a... I had kind of a rough summer, fall months, as you guys know, from also the lovely donations from the flood and my and my home and people helping me try to put things back together. And it was just like a kind of a long, hard slog. And that came along. I was like, that would be a nice thing. Like, that would be a fun thing. Uh, and, and so I think that's an important reaction that I had. Like, I want to go to that because it sounds like it would be cool and uplifting and kind of like positive and smart and cool to participate in. Uh, I felt that way when I did uh, get out the vote work for Obama in 2008. Spoilers, uh, spoilers, if you wanted to know what my political affiliation tended to be. Although my political affiliation is kind of up in the air sometimes, um, somewhat conservative on a variety of issues, but I won't get into that right now because I try to keep the politics kind of up the middle in overthinking it and not like branching off too severely one way or the other, uh, which actually is interesting because it's, you know, what the rally was about. It was about being able to function as a human being uh, with respect for other human beings through the way that you employ discourse uh, with that, you know, and to still sort of be that way in a politically charged and media saturated environment. Sure. So yeah, so my motivation to go to the rally was because I thought it was going to be fun and good and enjoyable and like a, a social event, right? Um, in the broadest sense. Now, not also, everyone was of this opinion, right? I, I heard – I read your tw- Twitter stream, and you can follow Pete at Fenzelian, twitter.com yep. slash Fenzelian. Yep. And uh, I, I read that there was a guy on the train behind you, the, what, the train from BWI into Washington, right? Yeah, yeah, the yeah, Mark who, train. Who was, who was bitching because uh, uh, the, the rally did not take politics seriously. Yeah, yeah, that guy, he was a little bit annoying to everybody on the train, uh, but that's okay. He was wearing a cowboy hat, so you could, I mean, it's funny, because I don't think, I think he was from Boston, and he had traveled down for some other reason, and he was, like, resentful of all of the other people that had made the train so crowded, because they had come down for the rally. But he was talking about how he felt like, uh, I think one of the best quotes was, like, fear is what this country was founded on. Right. It's like we should not rally like we should not make fun of people being afraid because people being afraid is like a powerful motivator for people to do good things. Right. And and I mean, I'm giving him a lot of credit and I'm like adding a lot of consistency to what he was talking about. He's mostly just upset uh, and just sort of ranting. And it was kind of giving me a headache as well as I suspect everybody else on the train. But no, I mean, like, but he was getting, he was deriving, you could tell from the way that he was talking, he was deriving a whole lot of the substance of his belief surrounding this rally from an emotional reaction that was connected to something that was kind of something else. Like, it really sounded like he was upset at us for being on the train, you know? And that reminded me of a lot of my friends, well, a couple specific friends, uh, and then sort of extrapolating that and inferring that to other friends who uh, went Republican in 2008 because they didn't like the way that they were being disrespected by people who were supporting Obama, right? So it's like they felt like they were getting pressured uh, or like that they were getting lorded over or that they were somehow like people were feeling superior because they were supporting a particular political affiliation. These people felt left out, and so they went the other way, right? It just sort of shows how people react emotionally to these things. 
Um, but yeah, there were a lot of people who were at the rally for very uh, political reasons. Well, I mean, again, as we've said on the podcast, pol- political is a word with very broad employment. So I will say that there were people who were there because they were involved in Democratic Party politics or third party party politics or even Republican Party politics. I mean, Kid Rock was one of the people who played, and he's a Republican fundraiser, um, uh-huh. and he played at the, at the concert. There were people there for political reasons, uh, but if you think that the rally was a Democratic rally, like, it wasn't, like, not at all. Uh, and, and it was this, I mean, NPR. A, Demo- was- a Democratic Party rally. Yeah, that's what I mean. It was not a Democratic Party rally. Like, there were people there who were like, you know, oh, it was a rally where people liked making fun of Sarah Palin and Glenn Beck. Like, those are two people that a lot of the people there didn't like, personally. But I think that, that when you consider what those people are as on the nexus between being entertainers and being politicians, uh, it's notable that the people who were being, you know, villainized were not Republican politicians. We're not even people who were formally running for office for anything, right? They were like media personalities, right? right. And, and so entertainers, really. Yeah, I mean, it, for all you want to, for all for for all intents and purposes, punditry is a form of entertainment. Yeah, it's exactly. a form of entertainment that has political purpose and is involved meaningfully in what happens, and it has a sort of correspondence with what people experience, uh, greater or lesser at certain points. But it's entertainment, right? So there were certain entertainers that these people felt put upon by and didn't like, right? And so there's a great big poster of Sarah Palin with Groucho Marx glasses on that was kind of funny. Huh. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of people just didn't like, like the messages of Sarah Palin. And, and there was a lot of feeling like we want to beat Glenn Beck's rally because we were offended by the existence of Glenn Beck's rally. And by all of the accounts of the people I know who are in D.C., it crushed Glenn Beck's rally. Like, huger crowds, right? You're not going to read that in the media because they're really self-conscious about the manipulation surrounding these numbers. Um, like I think the Fox News said sixty thousand, but Fox Fox's DC affiliate said two hundred thousand. So you know because they Fox's DC affiliate drew drew the numbers from uh, the metro system. Like how many people rode the metro on Saturday? more than what you would have expected on a Saturday in this given time. And it was like, well, that means that there were there were about two hundred thousand more people on the metro. Uh, and that's not necessarily meaning like rides, like but like people on the metro on Saturday. Yeah, uh, and it's not they weren't all there for the horse show, right? That was happening down at the convention center. No, yeah, uh, and, and like there's usually a horse show or something happening that contributes to the average. So there's a lot of like back and forth and politicking about those things. But to take it back to what I was saying, um, there were people who were there for political reasons, ref- really referential to the midterm elections and to coalitions and to the Democratic Party. They were about the same size minority of people in the audience as people who were there in Halloween costumes. Maybe a little bit more. So it's like, so I'd say about 1% of the people who were in the audience were wearing Halloween costumes. And like, maybe 5% of the people in the audience seemed to be there like, really like, I want to be supporting the Democrats in these midterm elections. Most of the people who were there seemed, and this is just my perception, right? And my perception was, was colored by a number of things, including where I was in the crowd, which was there was a row of vans that were sort of like the stage, a giant viewing area on the mall, a row of vans that had sound and video equipment, another giant viewing area, which is where I was. And I was about 150 feet back from that. And then it just went all the way back to, like, the Lincoln Memorial and Pass. So it's like, you know, a bunch of city blocks, right? Wow. Uh, and spilling out on both sides for blocks and blocks, like huge, huge crowd of people and very spread out. Like we weren't really crowded together uh, for most, most of it. They tried to pull us together so they could count us more easily through, but aerial, for, through aerial photography. But they had trouble counting us because we were all there to chill and have fun. We weren't like crammed up at the front like yelling and screaming. It was like people are spread out. 
um, you know, uh, all over the place. But a lot, most of the people who were there, I think, were there because they had uh, an intellectual sympathy with what was being discussed and like an emotional sympathy with what was being discussed. But the primary axis of it was like social engagement and personal enjoyment. Right? This is fun. It'll be cool to be among people. I compare it to Woodstock uh, in a number of ways. Um, because Woodstock, you know, you can read all the papers and articles about what a politically meaningful moment it was for that generation, yeah. right, to get together and to say the things. But Woodstock is a music festival. Like, they didn't get together. It's not re- – and yeah, there were people at Woodstock that were like, we hate the Vietnam War, blah, blah, blah. But, like, most of the people there weren't there for that reason, right? Now, I wasn't at Woodstock, so I'm basing this off of what I've read and heard. Um, and I'm not talking about Woodstock 2, which was where, where – that was the one where they were trying to sell the bottled water for $6 and they burned down all the trucks. Yeah. That, that was that one? Yeah, that was unfortunate. Um, but no, the first Woodstock, where it, like, it becomes a cultural touchstone, it represents a pretty clear idea. It wasn't a political event, but it was a political event. Um, so it wasn't involved in party politics deliberately, but uh, it became an event around which the discourse of the interchange of power um, was very tightly bound. Now, it remains to be seen what will happen because of this event. I think that the opposition to it has been pretty strong in terms of clamping down on it so that only the people who were there and the people who talked to them actually get the sense of what happened. I mean, reading the articles about it, you would think that it was like a stump speech from Kucinich or something, but it wasn't, right? It's like, you know, it's like a festival. It's a festival of cleverness is really what it is. Um, the, everybody had signs, not everybody, but a lot of people had signs that were really fun and funny. Um, and that was kind of a big highlight. Uh, it was like, oh, let's read all the funny signs. Uh, I had a sign uh, that I tweeted about. I don't know if you saw it. I did. Uh, what? I did. Yeah, it was, it was my Shepard Fairy parody sign, which uh-huh. said uh, – Paul Krugman has a posse, yeah, and it had like a, my hand drawing of what I described to people as crazy eyes Thomas Friedman, <laughs> which is how I like to describe Paul Krugman. <laughs> and then, and in the corner, it said what seven seven foot five uh, five hundred twenty pounds or seven <laughs> foot four or twenty pounds. So did, I'm not. I, did you know what? people get it? Oh yeah, it was a five percenter, but people got it. Yeah. I was very popular with middle aged women. Our whole the, our whole freaking website is a five percenter. Yeah, well, I mean that's what I go for, right? <laughs> I was I was I was talking to one of my friends' dads who was at the rally with us. And I was like, yeah, I'm really. I, I just tweeted that and it had gotten retweeted by some economists, and I was like, oh, I'm really. I I hit it big with economists, and he's like, that's not a. It's not a good thing. <laughs> like you're very that economists think you're funny. And it's like no, it's a great thing that economists think I'm funny. I, I'm playing to a subset, right? That's sort of what niche media is all about. So what was the um? Well, I mean, what was the lineup? The actual program of the thing? What happened? Well, I didn't. I missed the pre-show, right? So I, I was we. I got up like around ten thirty. My sister and I had breakfast, and we walked to get there. So I missed the Roots playing, but I think the Roots and the MythBusters were there. Um, Now, keep in mind, the most pernicious issue with this whole thing was that they didn't have adequate sound equipment. So if you weren't in the front and center, you had a lot of difficulty hearing what was going on. Right. Um, And and, and so there were lots of chants of louder, louder, um, that were like of a a middling level of enthusiasm. Um, And at certain points during the show, people started climbing trees around the National Mall, and the crowd would turn and like cheer for the people climbing the trees and and get upset when people would slid down the trees. And like that became the entertainment, uh, which says something about what's going on. But no, the program was, I think the Roots played, and the Mythbusters came on and did some experiments involving like the crowd doing the wave and things like that. Um, you had Stewart and Colbert would come on at various times. Uh, it was funny when John Stewart tried to get the crowd to count off, which was funny. They got to about three, 
uh, before they started running out of steam on that one. Um, and they would just do bits, and, and, and they would do... There was a wonderful uh, set piece that was kind of the, the real crown jewel of, of this whole thing, other than Jon Stewart's speech, which I'll get to in a second, which was um, they actually got uh, Yusef Islam, uh, Cat Stevens, at the, at the nation's capital. They got him into the country. I'm not sure exactly how he, he got a visa or what his situation is, but I, my understanding is he has not been welcomed in the United States for some time, or perhaps has chosen to live abroad for political reasons. But he came out, and he started playing Peace Train, right? Uh, and it was, like, really moving and intense. And then Colbert interrupts him. He's like, no! And then he brings on Ozzy Osbourne, who starts playing Crazy Train. <laughs> ah, and then they interrupt him, and then they bring out the OJs, who do Love Train, and then everybody sings and dances and has a good time. Um... But yeah, so it was basically like pre-show, daily show stuff uh, with banter and talking to the crowd. Then they did the, some musical acts. Then they, they gave out the rewards for uh, – and I'm doing this for memory, so forgive me if I get the, the order wrong – for um, reasonableness and for fear. There's a lot of like juxtaposition, right? It's like the dialectic. Like Stewart was the voice of reason and Colbert was the voice of fear. And uh, yeah, I mean the most – I think the most interesting thing that, that was happening there was when they really called out NPR for uh, taking down – for firing Juan Williams uh, as being like a purveyor of the idea of, of being overly afraid of things. It's like, oh, he said something sketchy about Muslims. We don't like him. <laughs> uh, I like the award for reasonableness that they gave to um, – was it Andreas Galarraga? the pitcher who had the perfect game and the umpire blew the call and he lost the perfect game and they interviewed him after and the pitcher's like, yeah, whatever happens, you know, I feel bad, but yeah, no, I don't, they gave him an award. They gave him a medal uh, for, for reasonableness. Um, they gave a, a medal of reasonableness to the, um, the guy who grabbed the Koran out of the hand of the guy who had burned the Koran, was on to burn the Koran. Um, they gave a medal of fear. What they give a medals of fear to, uh, well, they gave one to NPR. um, the media in general. Oh, they were going to give – they gave it to an 11-year-old girl for some reason. Like none of the people who were there were able to accept the medals of fear because they were kind of insults. Um, but anyway, uh, I, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. So like they had this, these set pieces where they were giving out medals and then they went back and they did sort of uh, reports from Daily Show correspondents. They actually covered the rally uh, from the pers- – they, they showed two different ways of covering the rally, right? And they're saying like this is how the media is going to cover this rally. So they have one segment where they're like, I'm here and it's really empowering and everybody's coming together and there's so many people here in the spirit of harmony and all this other stuff. And they go to another guy who's like, there's nobody here and everybody is throwing things and this person is crazy. And it was a really nice play on the way that the media interprets these kind of events. Um, but I couldn't hear a lot of what was going on on the segments because of the, the issues with the, the sound system and the adequacy of it. Uh, they brought out Kid Rock and Sheryl Crow, which was really anticlimactic and not very much fun. Because, uh, like, what, whatever. Like, it was like... <laughs> Kid Rock played like a song about how politics is kind of futile and he, he's sort of stuck in the middle and doesn't know what to do. And it was like a sort of slow, like balladeery piano Kid Rock song. <laughs> it, just, it started and people were like, what? <laughs> what is going on right now? They bring out Kid Rock and everybody is like shocked that it's Kid Rock because this is not a Kid Rock crowd. And then Kid Rock starts playing piano and everybody's like, okay. Right. Long December and there's yeah. – yeah. Exactly. Okay. It was like that but with Kid Rock. And, um, and they bring out Sheryl Crow who at a certain point in history was a very popular musician for, for, uh, for people of a certain age and has now kind of like made the jump to Carly Simonhood. Um, whom she always resembled more than uh, trivially. 
And uh, and I mean, whatever. They played a decent song, but whatever. I, I enjoyed the the train stuff more. Uh, and then after that, they did sort of more of a straight up daily show, like. John and Steven go back and forth. That's when people started leaving, was during Kid Rock and Sheryl Crow, I think, when it's like, okay, this is done. This is after like two hours. Um, and then uh, John Stewart delivers a big keynote address. After um, Stephen Colbert brings out a giant puppet of himself, and start, they start going back and forth about reason and fear and all this other stuff. And then John delivers a big keynote address to everybody uh, about what the thing is about, like what the conference is about. Um, and, and, and his main thing was, and the, the big quote that encapsulates it is, uh, these are hard times, but they're not end times. Yeah. Yeah. So, and that was kind of the really stirring thing, you know, is, was that like, yeah, there's a lot of stuff out there that you could be afraid of. And a lot of stuff out there that like, is dangerous. Um, but you know, this sort of level of amplification around these issues has become a, a big enough problem that it's making things a lot worse for everybody. And it really inhibits our ability to solve problems, to have uh, every single little thing blown incredibly out of proportion uh, by, by the media mostly. And, it, so, and Stewart is primarily being a media critic here. And he was, he was giving it to, you know, not even to both sides, he was giving it to the professional political infrastructure which yeah. is based largely on the business and personal relationships between media outlets and political campaigns and all the interests that they mutually represent, right? So, um, and also all of the, bi- the fundamentals of the businesses of media and of politics that create large incentives for people to behave in this way. So there's this big complex of things that prompts like you know, media outlets to report irresponsibly, um, and at the same time it's being – you know, taken advantage of and fueled by institutions that are trying to push it forward. Um, and, and he was sort of saying to everybody, look, you know, we don't have to choose to live our life this way. We can choose not to partake in this. We can turn our televisions off. Um, we can step back and relate to one another as human beings. That's what the rally is about. Uh, it's just being reasonable. And yeah, there are people on the right and there are people on the left, but the people who are demonizing people on the right are, are are not being accurate. The people who demonize the people on the left aren't being accurate. So you know, um, let's chill out and let's let's try to um, let's try to deal with this in a reasonable manner. And, and I thought that that was a really it was a really good address, and it was delivered passionately, but not inflammatorily. He wasn't being a demagogue with it, but you could tell he really cared about it. Uh, and and so the whole thing was I was I had a theory when I was on the train thinking this whole rally was put together to be very soothing. Like, the pace never really picked up too much. The music was never very loud. Almost all the musical acts belonged on, like, a, a Time Life Golden Oldies series of CDs, right? Like, uh, like I don't think there were... There were a couple of musicians there who I didn't recognize at all who were probably younger and from some trendy indie rock thing. But uh, everybody else was, was pretty much, like, had their heyday at least 10 years ago. Yeah. Uh, and... Uh, and for many of them, like 40 years ago. Uh, and, um, and so I think that they were deliberately keeping the program chill because that's what the rally was about. And they didn't, and they were acknowledging and trying to make up for the fact that these rallies so often are about empty demagoguery. Right. Just getting people stirred up. Like, that was not what they were trying to do. Um, I had a text message back and forth with a friend about how she was betting that there was going to be a big drunken riot and she didn't want me to go to the uh to the event and i was like oh, i'm gonna go i'm not afraid of that sort of thing like whatever and nobody was i mean there was i saw one guy with a flask like there was a guy in an abraham lincoln hat who had a flask other than that i saw nobody else drinking at the thing 
Um, and it was very chill and very mature. And the crowd was a- diverse from an age perspective, somewhat diverse from an ethnic perspective, probably not all that diverse from a e- perspective of like education level. Like a lot of college graduates, which of course we must remind ourselves are a pretty small percentage of the overall population. Um, but still a large group of people uh, who managed to get together and, and relate to each other in a fairly mature way. And, and it all closed out with like a big let's bring everybody out on stage and sing a random song. Which was what, nice. What was the song? Oh gosh, I don't even remember. It was like some random Motown song um, about being on a path. I think I'm sure all these people are going to be like, "Well, actually, I know." Yeah, sure. I don't. I'm doing this from memory. I want you guys to get my perspective on it um, and like sort of my recollection of it because. Uh, and I was thinking about this too uh, when I was coming home. Um. <sighs> So, I mean, I'll put this in, in perspective that you and I will both understand uh, as, as students of poetry, right? Um, sure. Because that's it. Why not? So, think of the lyrical ballads of Wordsworth and Coleridge, 1798, right? That's when that, that, the preface to the lyrical I, ballads. I often but, do think of them. It's, uh, the, the preface to the lyrical ballads is one of the most important uh, short pieces of exploratory um, authorial criticism in the English language, I think, because it talks about the whole romantic mission, right? This idea that writing comes from ex- – poetry comes from excess of emotion, right? And like, that's, the, that's the sort of authority from which it emerges, and that is the sort of aesthetic value and the artistic value. It's all bound up together. You write this thing because you feel it. Right, and that that's this is a legitimate artistic goal, as separate from the goals to high style of the Augustans, the the idea of aping tradition as a primary value, like write what you feel. And even though criticism has moved on from that, uh, writing hasn't. <laughs> right, like like the the writing that takes place in and among people that I know, and I think in in. I mean, I can't speak for more than America, really, but, like, it's still very much rooted in this romantic tradition of, like, I'm writing what I feel. Um, so I acknowledge when I'm talking about my perspective on this rally, like, I am using it, I'm using that kind of uh, artistic uh, priority system for it. I, I'm telling you my reactions as they were shaped by my emotions and my perception at the time. But I must also acknowledge that that theories of knowledge have somewhat moved on. The idea that what we feel is what is right uh, is not as authoritative as it might once have been. Um, and, and also, you know, there are problems with it, and, and I'm sure that I don't remember everything perfectly, and that kind of calls into question a lot of what I might say. But that notwithstanding, um, I do appeal to the importance of this kind of storytelling as a way of framing events and also as a way of, of, of resisting the well-trodden paths of institutional uh, self-censorship, right, if that makes sense. It makes perfect uh, sense, and I'm glad okay. that you could come on and, and uh, tell us about it. Oh, yeah, no, definitely. So at, at any rate, like, these are the events. This is my feeling about it. I felt like it didn't feel – it felt political in a grand sense, in a sort of cultural sense, a societal sense. A bunch of people stepping forward and saying, we are not being served by this political complex. Or, we yeah, are or by this – I mean uh, a use of power, that there is a use of power yeah. that we feel is, is detrimental to uh, the, the larger society. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, it's more than just one use. It's a whole, I mean, it, it's funny. It was a giant rally about meta discourse. Yep. Right. Giant rally about meta discourse saying like, we are savvy enough. All the signs are about showing that people are savvy enough to understand the existence of meta discourse. And, and, and of course, like one of the great ways to refute this criticism is to deny the existence of meta discourse and say like, I say what I mean. No, you don't. None of you are saying what you mean, right? Like, that's, that's the point. Is that like, like, you're not saying what you mean. You're saying what would be advantageous. Um, and, and even if you think you're saying what you mean, 
um, in this sort of complex that Stewart and Colbert are criticizing, um, you're often you're often being misled by somebody who is trying to get you to mean something that they have determined has, serves a particular purpose. Most of which involves tax cuts uh, and like the distribution of public money. So it's like it's worth it to me to spend a billion dollars uh, to convince a whole lot of people to think a certain way about reality so that I can reap a two billion dollar tax cut. And you can do a lot to convince people about things for a billion dollars because writers are cheap. Uh, and, and as we all know, who write for free on the internet. <laughs> um, but yeah, but it was a giant thing. Of, it was a giant uh, rally about meta discourse, and everybody left and went to the bars and went to the town and had big Halloween parties, and it was great. It was a fun time, and it was it was a positive experience. And I don't particularly care what effect it has on the midterm elections because that wasn't what it was about. And and I mean, I think that um, yeah, to an extent, like there will probably be bad things that will happen as a result of what is going to take place in the midterm elections and for both sides i think that you know people who are conservative have have a lot to fear from the current political environment and people who are liberal have a lot to fear from the current political environment i don't think you're going to see a lot of fiscal responsibility uh, coming from either side because people are too entrenched in their uh in their ideas of resonant uh planks on their platforms uh to really take maturity and mature eye towards uh running the budget but that's not what this rally was about Right. This rally was about discourse and meta discourse, and everybody got on board. And I think that you can look to this rally in all of its complexity as a crystallization of the way that a lot of people are reacting emotionally and intellectually to the environment that we're currently in. Fair enough. So there you go. So yep. we want to know about your reactions to the environment that we're currently in, or we want some uh, we want some questions, life's tough issues for Pete to answer. In, oh yeah, uh, sure. No. In an ongoing column, why not ask Fenzel? Or maybe we could do a little podcast out of it. We could do little ten minute episodes. Actually, wouldn't that be fun, Pete? We could knock out five in a week, five five minute episodes <laughs> in in half an hour, and then release them one a day. Uh, you know, I don't know. The why not? We ask talked Fenzel? about doing that before. We talked about doing like micro episodes because that was like the next big thing in blogging uh, about six months ago or something like that. Well, it's, it, yeah, I mean, it's like there are different kinds of shows. You know, ours, a, a weekly roundtable show like ours, or a, like a, a daily, there are all kinds of like daily meditation or daily prayer or daily thought or daily grammar or daily, uh, you know, French lesson or all, all kinds of things that are in the three to five minute range. And the one that I wanted to do with you was about creativity because you and I are both involved in, in various capacities with sort of creative enterprises, the, the enterprise of kind of making something where once there was nothing. And, right. uh, you know, and, and I think we, we probably have some perspectives to share on that that some people might find um, uh, helpful. Uh, perspective or worth number arguing one. with. Yeah, yeah. Or, worth, yeah <laughs> or worth bitching about. Right, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Perspective number one, quit listening to podcasts and, you know, put pen to paper already. Um, Which is what I need to do pretty soon. <laughs> right now, because you have an article. Due I have an article due tomorrow. I'll probably just write about a lot of what I just said. But <laughs> I hope you don't mind. I'll add pictures. I'll this try to get is, pictures. You see, this is repurposing, you know? That's why we're... Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, we're, yeah, exactly. We're <laughs> leveraging our content across other oh, things. Okay. Well, if you want to leverage right in our face, email us at podcast at overthinkingit.com <laughs> or call or text us at 203-285-6401. We queue those uh, letters and calls up for our listener feedback episodes. And, uh, you know, as you know, we get to them when, when we can, and it takes us for freaking ever. But uh, email fenzel at overthinkingit.com if you want to um, yep. uh, ask tough questions uh, to Fenzel for his uh, soon-to-be-resurrected occasional column. <laughs> Why not ask Fenzel? And until next time, visit us on the web at www.overthinkingit.com, the site where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. 
it, it probably, probably I guess there's no outtakes this week. I think we, we have to do it every once in a while where there are no outtakes so that the outtakes stay special.